Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Right now, there's a big discussion on what to do over regulations that were eased during the pandemic. In an effort to help people with social distancing and businesses to stay afloat, many state and local governments across the country relaxed regulations over cocktails to go, telehealth, other medical services, even document notarization and marijuana sales. And now that the country is starting to open back up in earnest, many want to keep these changes permanent. For more on what to do about these regulations eased under COVID, we'll speak to Aaron Zittner reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Hundreds and hundreds of regulations were temporarily eased because of the pandemic. I mean, things like some states allowed you to get married over Zoom, which hadn't been allowed before. (laughs) In Arizona, they allowed telemedicine for pets under eased rules, lifting some rules that made it hard to get a veterinarian to uh, initiate contact with you as a new patient over Zoom. The federal government allowed food trucks for the first time to show up at highway rest areas. You know, when you stop at a rest area, they might have uh, vending machines or, you know, along here at the New Jersey Turnpike, you have whole service stations. But a lot of rest areas just have a restroom and a trash can and vending machines and food trucks were allowed in for the first time. But you're right. Some of the biggest changes had to do with big changes in health care. Doctors were allowed to operate across state lines, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, all kinds of licensed people were able to operate across state lines in states in which they were not licensed, in which they usually would have to get a license. A lot of changes in the scope of practice. People were allowed to take on medical tasks that previously they weren't allowed to, such as prescribing certain medications, and a lot of changes in restaurants and alcohol. And now consumers have gotten used to this. I mean, who doesn't like cocktails to go? In some states, if I ordered food, the same truck could not bring me a six-pack if that state allowed a six-pack to be delivered at all. And now we've gotten used to a lot of these changes. We like seeing our therapists online. We like getting our alcohol to go. We all have apps on our phone to allow us to do these things more easily. And the lawmakers have to decide which to keep and which to jettison. And when you change the rules, there are winners and losers. Some people are going to make more money. Some people are going to lose. And we're seeing those counter efforts, too, by some of these industries saying we got to go back to the way it was before. If it wasn't a necessity before the pandemic, it shouldn't be a necessity after the pandemic. So let's break some of these down individually. Let's start with to-go cocktails, just because that's a little fun. A lot of restaurants were recognizing that people wanted complete meals, their meals plus their alcoholic beverages. And beyond that, bars that didn't serve food. They needed to stay afloat also. And the to-go cocktail program was a lifeline for a lot of them. But there's a lot of backlash to that as well, saying a lot of liquor stores and convenience stores saying, we can't have this going. They took a hit in sales because of those easing of regulations. So how does that one look? Alcohol regulation is so heavy and balkanized. There are different rules for spirits, for wine and for beer. There are different rules for producers and distillers. And then you have distributors and then you have wholesalers and retailers. And these rules, you know, a lot of them date to the prohibition era. And really, it had not been common until the pandemic for a restaurant to be able to sell you a uh, sealed margarita with your burger and fries 
if you were getting home delivery. And most states loosened up and said, you know, restaurants need a new revenue source. Let's let them sell cocktails. And a lot of them also said that liquor stores could also sell sealed alcohol. You could call up a liquor store and get a delivery more easily. But whenever you change something like this in such a highly regulated area, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. So the cocktails to go is a threat in a lot of places to the local package store or convenience store or liquor store. Someone who stopped for a six pack at a convenience store attached to a gas station on their way home now has the option of phoning into a restaurant to get alcohol delivered to the home. So the trade groups that represent convenience stores and in some cases wholesalers in some states are trying to fight efforts to make cocktails to go permanent. And consumers are out there saying, wait a minute, there are apps like Drizzly and we all have Grubhub and Uber Eats. It's so convenient. It's on my phone. How can you really not allow me to get the product that I want delivered? If it was okay during the pandemic, why is it not okay now? That's a tricky one. I have a suspicion that that one might be around for some time, but we'll have to see. It's going to be different across the country. As you mentioned, the health industry, lots of changes there. Let's start with telehealth. You mentioned the article, some 24.5 million Medicare beneficiaries use telehealth between mid-March and mid-October. That's a lot of people. And, and when people didn't want to leave their house, couldn't leave their house, telemedicine was such a huge benefit to those people that needed those services. So what was changed for telehealth? And obviously, again, what's the counter argument to it? There are a lot of changes in healthcare. some like Medicare on the federal level and some on the state level. And you're going to see a lot of fights state by state over some of these health rules. So Medicare, this was a shock to me as a reporter. Until the pandemic, Medicare was very restricted in what it would pay for when it came to telehealth. You had to live in a certain rural geography. And in most cases, you couldn't access telehealth. You couldn't see a doctor through video conferencing from your home. You had to leave your house and go to an approved point of contact and then log in through a video conferencing app to see a healthcare provider. The number of people using telehealth in Medicare was in the thousands before the pandemic. Congress said to the Medicare agency, look, change this, be less restrictive. And Medicare during the pandemic opened the doors and said, no matter where you live, we will pay for telehealth services. You can access them from your home and we will expand the number of services that we cover through telehealth. We'll also allow you to access a lot of them by phone, plain old telephone, as well as by video conferencing. And that just exploded. I mean, millions and millions of people now get healthcare services paid for by Medicare that they get through telehealth. This is something that is gonna be made more permanent. There's just no way to put the toothpaste back in the tube and the genie back in the bottle. The question is going to be how liberal do the rules get because this could get expensive. If a visit with a doctor by video replaces a visit that was going to happen anyway in person, it might be a cost savings. Maybe doctors don't need to have as many waiting rooms and there's less travel cost. But if this change means that I'm going to go see the doctor more often, and the doctor is going to bill more often for it. It could add a lot of costs to Medicare. And that's what the Congressional Budget Office, which is the scorekeeper of these things, has said in the past. It has said this is a net add to costs because there'll be more services rendered. And so the issue is going to be cost there. 
nurse practitioners got an increase in uh, uh, what they could do, patients they could see, and then even prescribing medications. They could do this without a physician supervisions. Now, this one that seems to be on both sides of it, uh, you know, the nurse practitioners saying, hey, we're providing more services to help more people. On the other side, they're saying that you're taking away work from the physicians and the people that study to be there. So that could be another one that faces some opposition, too. Yeah, there are a lot of things regarding what they call scope of practice. Can your pharmacist give you a COVID injection, a COVID vaccine, that kind of thing? And some of the ones we looked at had to do with nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And there were a couple of wrinkles here. Nurse practitioners in a lot of states are required to have these deals with MDs. And the physician is supposed to kind of look over the shoulder of the nurse practitioner. And nurse practitioners in some places can provide a lot of different health services. But a lot of states have said, we want you to have a deal where an MD is always signing off on your records and looking over your shoulder. And during the coronavirus pandemic, some states had already been lifting those rules, but some states Additional states lifted those rules because it can be hard as a nurse practitioner to get a doctor to form an agreement with you. And if they do, you have to spend money. You have to pay the doctor. And in order to just get health care to be more available, especially in rural areas, some states suspended that rule. And some states also said, you know, previously we would allow nurse practitioners to prescribe certain medications, but we drew the line at what they call Schedule II narcotics. A lot of these are painkillers you know, part of the opioid epidemic, and some of them are ADHD-related drugs like Adderall and Ritalin. We don't want nurse practitioners to be prescribing those, and certainly not without supervision. But during the pandemic, the rules were eased, and nurse practitioners were able to do more things with less supervision. And now the fight is over. Whether going back to the old rules will enhance patient safety, because people should be supervised in the medical field when they're dealing with dangerous drugs and dealing with the surgeries and procedures, or whether patients will be undermined if we go back to the old rules because healthcare will be less available. There's going to be a lot of interesting fights over these regulations in the next few months as the country really starts to open back up and we get back to normal. And in a lot of cases, a lot of this has to do with convenience for the consumers, obviously, but just more access to a lot of these services so it's going to be really interesting to see what becomes of a lot of these regulations. We'll follow this and, and see what happens to all of that. Aaron Zittner, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be with you. Florida has been going through an ecological disaster at the Piney Point Phosphate Plant in Manatee County. A leaking reservoir there threatened to break, releasing millions of gallons of wastewater into the nearby area. Instead, there was a controlled dump, releasing 165 million gallons into Tampa Bay. The wastewater is not radioactive, but it's full of nitrogen and phosphorus, which could lead to an algal bloom that could kill off fish in the area. For more on this, we'll speak to Zach Sampson, environment reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. This site has a long history for Tampa Bay, but it used to be uh, involved in fertilizer manufacturing, and it was abandoned functionally uh, when its owner sort of uh, went under just about 20 years ago now. And since then, at one point, the state was in control of it through a, a court-appointed receiver, and then a private company took over and, and is in, in charge now called HRK Holdings. And the difficulty of the site is that it contains the stacks of phosphogypsum, which is a uh, radioactive byproduct of manufacturing fertilizer. And along with these stacks, it has ponds 
of wastewater. And in this one pond here, uh, what you have is is a mix, the state says, of old seawater from a dredging project about a decade ago, rainwater, and a remnant of the fertilizer industry. And and so it's polluted water that's high in nitrogen and and high in phosphorus. And what happened was uh, about a week ago now, a little more than a week ago now, HRK Holdings reported to the state that they had detected some signs of a leak, which indicated possibly that there was a crack in this reservoir of, of wastewater. And uh, that leak was putting pressure over the coming days, potentially, on the phosphogypsum stacks on the site, on these dikes around the pond. And they were worried it was going to break apart and potentially release a big flood into the surrounding area. And so to try to reduce that pressure, the state has greenlit HRK Holdings to release some of that wastewater into Tampa Bay, as you said, through Port Manatee. So as of yesterday afternoon, which you know would have been Tuesday right around 2 or 3 p.m., the Florida Department of Environmental Protection reported that about 165 million gallons of that wastewater have gotten to the bay so far. That number could go up. The dischargers have been continuing. This reservoir at one point contained 480 million gallons approximately of, wow. of wastewater. And it's been sitting there for many, many years, as you said. And the concern was real because they said that if the leak fully broke and everything, it could send a 20-foot wall of wastewater into the neighboring area. That's why they had to evacuate. I think it was over 300 homes, a a nearby prison. But the effects, the ecological effects, could have been much greater than they are now. As it is, there's a lot of concerns there. They say that the water there is not radioactive because some of that byproduct is. But as you mentioned, high in nitrogen and high in phosphorus, they're scared that it could cause an algae bloom, could kill off a lot of fish. And this would happen in the next few weeks or so. It's, we wouldn't even know how it's going to happen until some time goes by. It's kind of like fertilizer on land, right? And so what scientists are looking for is, is whether those elevated levels of nitrogen will provide essentially a fuel source for harmful algal blooms, which, are, which is, is something Florida has had a problem with before. And, and what they say is that, you know, that added nitrogen in the bay could potentially encourage those kind of blooms. And, and what happens in those scenarios is, The blooms can cause algae to decay. As it's decaying, it drops the oxygen level in the water potentially. And and in a bad case, what that eventually might lead to is is fish kills or or damage to marine life. Tell me a little bit about the history of Piney Point, if you can. It was built in 1966. And my understanding is that almost immediately there was uh, some stories about uh, dumping pollution. And just, uh, you know, it closed about 20 years ago. But it's just been a, a lingering problem for a while. Sure, yeah. I, it's been a boondoggle in Florida for quite some time. Uh, if you go back and read stories about Piney Point decades ago, you, you hear of, of pollution leaking off of the site. And uh, even in the last 20 years or so, you've seen that in a couple of, a couple of instances. There's been releases uh, back in 2003. The, the state was still in charge at that point and got permission to dump some of the water from there deep out in the Gulf of Mexico. It's pretty close to Tampa Bay, the, the edge of the bay itself um, over there by Port Manatee. And, and just to the north and just to the south, there are aquatic preserves that are renowned and, you know, beloved and recognized by the state as outstanding waters uh, that deserve protection. And those are shallow estuaries, which uh, nurture, you know, nurture marine life here. Fish go in there to spawn. Uh, fishermen love to go back in there. And so there's a concern because in the past, when, when Piney Point has had problems, there have been algal blooms before in some of those protected harbors and, 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 and kind of beloved spots on the bay. 
And now what are some of the next steps? Uh, one of the plans possibly to help with all of this is to clean some of that water and then inject it deep into the ground, into underground aquifers. And that also can come with its own uh, potential ecological impacts that might not be seen for many years. Uh, and I know some of the uh, local farmers in, in the area are kind of concerned with that. But tell me a little bit about that plan, because that's uh, creeping up right now. I think the Florida Senate approved uh, $3 million for uh, cleanup there at Piney Point. This is going to be part of a $200 million effort to permanently close that site. And some of that money is going to come from uh, some of the uh, COVID relief money that was just recently passed as well. Yeah, that is what it's looking like right now. And and it's important to know that, you know, even recently um, in the last couple of months, Manatee County has made Piney Point a, a priority. And, and some of the reason for that is that it was even before this leak, there were warnings the wastewater ponds there were, were nearing their capacity and that soon rainfall would, would overtop them. And so there were these discussions uh, even before the leak about a, a well to take some of that water and pump it deep underground in an injection well. And that is something that in the past has concerned the uh, farmers in the area. There's a lot of agricultural operations that rely on pulling water out of the Florida aquifer and having that be fresh, fresh water for irrigation, drinking supplies. So Manatee County's commission yesterday voted to move forward with that uh, well plan on county property, which means they'll be able to control when it's used and the level of treatment that the water will be held to. And and so for at least one commissioner who had previously opposed this plan, that was an important point, thinking that at least this water can be cleaned somewhat before it's pumped deep underground. But environmentalists do continue to, to raise questions, and, and farmers as well, about how, how much is this pump going to be used, how what protections are going to be in place, and what level of treatment is going to be in there to guarantee that this isn't going to have a negative negative effect on Florida's freshwater supply. And, you know, we've been in an immediate crisis with Piney Point for a little while, but that's just one example of sort of the ramifications down the line and, and stories that we don't quite yet know what how they're going to bear out, but right. we'll continue to cover. What has the local reaction been there? It seems there's a lot of shifting blame, you know, as the as is the case with a lot of these types of things. You know, obviously a problem that hasn't been dealt with with many years. HRK Holdings says, hey, this aligning was in place before we bought the site there, so don't hold us liable kind of thing. And really, you know, this was a private company but now taxpayers there in Florida have to foot the bill for the cleanup and the closure and whatever ecological damage is done in the near term, they, you know, they have to put the bill for all of this. I think that's kind of where people's heads are at is they're wondering right now, it's, it's unclear who's going to bear the cost of this cleanup and who's going to bear the cost of the current crisis. And, and I think people want answers on that. It's, it's definitely uncertain. And, you know, they also want some accountability. There's folks who have known about Piney Point for a long time and known that it was a problem and are frustrated now that this is to some extent history repeating and, and a problem that was never really brought to a close uh, when they thought it could be. And there's a whole other group of people here. You know, a lot of people move to Florida every year who maybe weren't aware of Piney Point, but have, have quickly gotten a crash course in the last week and I think are, are wondering, yeah, how did we get here? You know, and all of those questions kind of overlap. Zach Sampson, environment reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.